Yes, we're back. Good morning, Daniel Mumby. Good morning, Richard. Um, you need to get a bit nearer to the microphone. How's that? That's much better, yes. Okay. I'll tell you what, I'll pull your fader down while you adjust it a bit and I then... Uh, all right, we can carry on. How are you this morning? I'm fine, I'm all, fine. All set for tomorrow? Uh, I, as set as I'm going to be, right. yes. <laughs> and also joining in the studio this morning is Lewis Denny. Good morning. And congratulations on your award, Northumberland Child of Achievements. Thank you. And very famous now. Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we, we've invited Lewis in because, um, well, Daniel and I, actually more precisely Daniel, has been running down the in-betweeners uh, movie over the last few weeks, so we thought it was time for a bit of balance, so we'll come to that in a well, moment, Just because you've been mentioning er him every time we brought it up, yes. so I thought it was only fair. It was indeed, right. Shall we have a look at what's going on in Annick? Why not? That's a good place uh, to start. Monday, it's going to be 4.30 for Horrid Henry, the movie. Now, I think we both like this. I mean, it got kicked all around town by the critics, and I don't think it needed to be in 3D, but it's good, ropey fun, and um, good performance performance by Richard E. Grant as the headmaster. Yeah. And the good news, of course, at Annick Playhouse is it won't be in 3D. Yes, of course. So, that's good. Uh, Wednesday, 7.30 for Beginners. Which I like. I mean, if you're of... If you're the sort of person who doesn't like sort of indie-pindy, quirky stuff, then you will lose patience with it. But Ewan McGregor is finally getting back to the, the quality of work that he was doing about ten years ago. I was watching um, Rogue Trader again um, recently, and of course that's quite topical with all the, the stuff about uh, the current Rogue Trader and the new is actually hiring, Indeed, and yes. actually hiring Nick Leeson's lawyers. So it's going to be interesting where that goes. But yeah, Beginners yes. is very, very Except good. the new one's got two more zeros on the end of it. Yes. It was. <laughs> a lot of money, a yes. lot of money. Uh, right, so if you want to go to see uh, those at the Annick Playhouse. The box office number is Annick 510785. Mm -hmm. I like that. Indie Pindy. <laughs> yeah. What was the, what was the Indie Pindy quirky stuff. Indie Pindy quirky stuff. I shall remember that one. Right, Berwick, uh, this afternoon uh, at 1 o'clock and tomorrow at 2.30. They've got the Smurfs. Oh. We'll come to that. <laughs> Um, Monday evening, uh, half price Monday, of course, for the Devil's Double Certificate 18. Which I haven't heard of, actually. So oh, sorry. gosh! Gosh! <laughs> I'm sorry, it had to come. <laughs> it had to come, yes. <laughs> um, then we've got uh, Tuesday and at um, 8 o'clock and Thursday at 7 o'clock, Super 8. Which um, looks really, really good. I mean, I... And I think that J.J. Abrams is doing a good job of sort of pastiching Spielberg while keeping the film its own identity, although there is a bit too much lens flare in there. Right. And then on Wednesday evening, an Italian drama, The Consequences of Love. Yeah, no, I've heard of that. I haven't seen it, but I think it, it's Paolo Sorrentino who most recently made um, Il Divo, which was this fantastic Italian political drama about this... Um, this, uh, M this Italian MP who'd been you know, sort of in and out of power for about 70-odd years or something like that. And I think... Uh, Consequences of Love has got Emily Blunt in and she's very, very good, so by all means check it out. Right. And the Maltings box office number is 01289 330999 and we'll be coming back to the Maltings a little bit later in the programme, won't yeah, we? we will. Right. But before that, the top ten. Number ten may be on its way out. The eighth and final, thankfully, um, instalment of Harry Potter. Do you want to keep it short and sweet? Yeah, not worth the effort. Right, number nine. <laughs> Have you been see that one? No, no. no. Uh, number nine, Fright Night. Which is perfectly fine. I mean, it's not funny or scary enough to cut the mutters as a first-rate horror comedy. Bear in mind, of course, that the original Fright Night was quite sort of old-fashioned and creaky anyway. Um, it doesn't need to be in 3D. It's only worth seeing if you're a fan of either David Tennant or Colin Farrell, because they're both pretty good in this. Great actors. Right, number eight, Final Destination 5. Um... 
run-of-the-mill, slightly boring collection of money shots. I mean, the 3D again isn't worth it. It's made interesting only by the presence of Tony Todd, who plays the title role in Candyman, and I would suggest go and rent that as, instead, because Bernard Rose is an underrated horror director, and it's got Virginia Madsen in, who's very good. Right. Number seven, not liked by the critics, Columbiana. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much... A, there was a time not so long ago when Luc Besson was quite well respected as a director, because he's the guy who made Leon and uh, The Fifth Element back in the 90s, you know, with Bruce Willis, and yeah. that's the one good performance by Mila Jovovich before she got into the Resident Evil stuff. And then he, about five or six years ago, he suddenly decided that he wasn't going to direct anymore, he was just going to produce other directors. So this is a Luc Besson production, it's very over the top, there's lots of people running and shouting and hitting each other. It's directed by Oliver Megaton, who made Transporter 3, and Louise Sardano does her best, but it's a very cliched plot. I mean, particularly if you saw Hannah earlier this year, which did pretty much exactly the same storyline, but with more intelligence and more grace. Right. Number six, no one the critics don't like, one day. It's it's not terrible, it's just a bit disappointing. I don't think Anne Hathaway's accent is as terrible as other people think, but the story is very contrived in a way that suggests that, that was a problem with the novel rather than simply with the film. Once you get beyond that device, it's a very, it's a very ordinary storyline. Like I say, it's not terrible, it's just a little bit bland. Right. Number five, film of the year. It's going to be on at the Playhouse the next week after next. That's so good. we'll be giving that a plug next Saturday. Uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Brilliant film. Fantastic effects. Great CGI. You've got to go see it. Uh, the prequel that needed to be told. But I was talking to somebody during the week who said it's not as good as Charlton Heston. Yes, we do know Charlton Heston's <coughs> version of Planet of the Apes is one of the greatest films of all time, and, 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 uh, you know, it is different. Yeah, there was a, a wonderful, there were, I was listening to Five Live the other day when they were having sort of um, user review reviews of that and someone texted in saying planet of the missed opportunity gorillas in the missed opportunity as a review <laughs> which is not bad but I, yes. I will make an effort to go to the annex screening yeah you should right i will number four your favorite film at the moment the smurfs I, I honestly can't believe that it's hung around quite so long i mean one guess is that it's just because it's the only kid-friendly thing that's on wide release at the moment but it is totally derivative um my guess is that we may get another one now and that just fills me with dread and one of the weeks before it goes out the top I am going to play this most theme tune. <laughs> Come what may. <laughs> if you must, okay. When it gets below number seven, then you can play it. Yes. I, I, I keep wanting to play it at this point in the programme, but then I realised you'd never cut it out of the podcast. So, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, which would be cruel, wouldn't it? Mm. Right. Number three, Jane Eyre. That's interesting. It looks rather good, actually. I mean, it's directed by Kerry Fukunaka, who made uh, Sinombri, which is very interesting. And it's much more restrained adaptation of the Charlotte Bronte novel than, for instance, the 80s TV series with Timothy Dalton as Lord Rochester, and I do think that Timothy Dalton's the definitive Lord Rochester. Um, it's got a very washed-out colour palette, it's very understated, there is a fantastic central performance by Mia Vesikovska, who was the lead in Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, which, you know, the film was rubbish, but she was good. Um, and I'm a Tim Burton fan, so I know that doesn't come likely. She was also very good in The Kids Are All Right. She's ably complimented by Michael Fassbender, who was in Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious, <coughs> previously was in Steve McQueen's Hunger. It's very elegant, but not in the way of something like The Go-Between, which is elegant, but it's also very dull. This is actually very interesting. Right. Worth going to see. Mm. 
number two, Friends with Benefits. Which is alright, I mean, the premise is essentially when Harry Met Sally turned on its head, because you remember when Harry Met Sally, it's, you know, can people, um, be friends without sex <laughs> getting in the way, and in this case it's can people have sex without the friendship getting in the way. And, you know, it's slightly funnier than the very similar No Strings Attached, which sort of came out earlier this year. It's interesting that both the two big female stars of Black Swan, Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis, have ended up making essentially the same film, but at different yeah. points. Um, Justin Timberlake and Mila Kunis, they've got good chemistry. It is totally disposable fluff, but it's all right. Right. And at number one, and we're going to let Lewis uh, review this I'll one, the In Between Us oh. movie. So what did you think of that? Well, I honestly thought it was brilliant. Um, one of the main reasons, as was said before, I think it wouldn't have been as good if I wasn't sitting in the cinema with the whole audience in there. As if, I, if I was sitting by myself watching it, I don't think it would have been as funny. But I think the audience gives it a more uplifting um, atmosphere, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, did you... F <coughs> a question following on from that. Did you feel like... Um, because I, I agree that if you're watching a con particularly a comedy in a cinema which is packed full, then there are generally more laughs. But did you feel any sort of pressure to laugh at one point because everyone else was? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Was that, uh, was that a frequent occurrence? Um, it was just any time there was a joke that I didn't actually think was funny, I just laughed because everyone else was in the cinema who was watching it. It was just the atmosphere in there. Because it was the first day it came out, and I, I thought, right, I'm going to go and see this. Um... I just think, because it was a full, full cinema, it, I just thought they made it more atmosphere. Okay, so how many times did you genuinely laugh of your own accord? Twice. <laughs> <laughs> right. But worth going to see, is it? Um, uh, yes. Good. Okay. So, as I've never seen the TV programme, just tell me very quickly what it's about. Well, it's about four, four teenage boys, um, I'm not going to name them because I forget, Jay, Neil, Will and... Simon. That's very good. That's it. Um, and they're just a weird bunch of school kids who, you know, want to find the right girl and have sex, etc. And it just turns out all wrong on the TV show. And they go on various trips, say, to London, and they go to different things. And But I just think their movie was kind of better than the TV show itself hmm. because it was a bit longer, I just think. Because fitting an episode into... 25 minutes i just think it could have been a bit longer on the tv okay good i mean i do have to retract because when this came out i do remember saying that i thought it wasn't going to stick around very much because i thought no, the plot device was sending them on a holiday is quite it's a yeah. sign of a tv series running out of steam but i do have to admit that on that front i was wrong because it has taken bucket loads of money and it scored very well on my little tomato meter here yeah it, i mean it's um, i i dare say it's hit its target audience of which lewis is undoubtedly a part um i still won't be rushing out to see it but i know i respect your opinion right you've argued your case very well right <laughs> so films to watch this week jane eyre would be top of the list um and then well friends with benefits is a date movie but don't see it on your own and uh, certainly if you i mean you might laugh if you go and see it in a packed cinema but it's not brilliant okay so a few to uh, to think about there yes. now next weekend up in berwick the berwick film festival indeed um it's from friday to sunday so um 
uh, same time at the food festival, but you can sort of dart between the two if you're very skilled. Yes. And uh, we just, I mean, I just kind of looked through the online program and made a list of a few things that are coming up that I would really like to catch. They're opening with uh, a screening of an Iranian film called I Am Nazarene on uh, the Friday night at 7 p.m., which has been praised by Sir Ben Kingsley, oh. saying that it's an important film. It must be good. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's the old quote about Ben Kingsley when he's good, he's very, very good, but when he's bad, he's Gandhi, which I don't entirely <laughs> agree with, but we'll see. Yeah, I like Gandhi. I think enough. we better cut that out of the podcast. Right, <laughs> move on. <laughs> but also, I mean, there's there's a, a couple of other things I'd like to catch. I mean, Arietti they're showing, which is the new Studio Ghibli film, which we talked about a few months ago. Oh, you ago. were raving over that one. Yeah, and I still haven't seen it, but it looks really good. Company of Wolves, which is Neil Jordan's retelling of Red Riding Hood based on the Angela Carter novel, which has got very good special effects in and a very sort of creepy in a good way. Very big too, they're showing Jean Cocteau's La Belle et La Bette, which is his version of the Beauty and the Beast myth. And for my money, it knocks the Disney version into a cocked hat. It's a very strange black and white French film, but just gets that fairy tale sensibility. Yeah. This is a wild card I'd like to mention. Um, they're showing the new Moomins film, Moomins what? and Midsummer Madness. Now, I've always found the Moomins very, very creepy, but am I in the minority on that? Do you, are, you, are you young enough to remember the Moomins? I've never heard of the Moomins. Uh, there was sort of a Finnish um, cartoon series of, they looked like sort of stuffed beanbags with, with very distant eyes, and it was just that sort of sense of, there's something not quite right about these things, but the film was probably quite charming. <laughs> well, you sounds, sounds really quite weird. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you don't remember the movements. No, I don't. No, no just, um, it was this no. group of people, there was a character yes. called Little Mai who was so about two are. inches I'm tall. I'm too old, Lewis is too young. Yes, it, it was, no, only me that was traumatised. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just great. Yes. So, if you fancy going up to see the Berwick Film Festival, the Maltings number is 01289 330999, and they will tell you all about it. Yeah, and it should be very good. Right, this week's cult film is The Magic Christian, and we'll be having a talk about that after these. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Attic. This is Lionheart Radio. Back to 1969, Flower Power, Beatles... Yes. And smiling. the Magic Christian. Yes, this week's cult film. Bit of a who's who, isn't this, of the uh, late 60s? It is. We, we'll come to the cast um, a little later because there is a lot of people to get through. But uh, here's the setup: 1969 satirical black comedy based on the 1959 novel by Terry Southern, who's most famous for co-writing the screenplay for Doctor Strangelove. The story goes that um, Peter Sellers uh, gave Stanley Kubrick a copy of the book when they were on the set of Lolita together, where, of course, Peter Sellers plays uh, three roles in that. Well, it's Claire Quilty who dresses up as a lot of disguises to try and seduce the girl away from James Mason. And Kubrick absolutely loved the book and called Southern and said, no, I want you to come on board for my next project. And they together turned Dr. Strangelove from what started out as a straight drama to, well, the greatest black comedy ever made. Well, certainly, you know, tied with Kind Hearts and Coronets. He also wrote a lot of the dialogue for uh, Easy Rider around the same time. So he, he was one of those, those authors who became part of the zeitgeist in the sort of the mid to late 60s, and he was very much in demand. The screenplay also had contributions from future Pythons Graham Chapman and John Cleese, who also turn up about halfway through the film. Directed by Joseph McGrath, who, with the best will in the world, is not a brilliant director. He's most famous for helming uh, the James Bond spoof Casino Royale, which has got um, you know, David Niven and Woody Allen in it. I think the countdown was something like, you know, when one James Bond isn't enough and you get sort of four or five actors yeah. playing him. And, and, 
And that was the film from which Peter Sellers was involved, but he walked off the set because he saw the film as an opportunity to, to audition for Bond surreptitiously for real, but he was effectively laughed at and he you know, said, I'm sick and tired of just being the butt of your jokes, I'm off. Um, McGrath eventually ended up filming the TV films of both Rising Damp and the, Morecambe, and the second Morecambe and Wise fund, so no. He didn't <laughs> have a great pedigree, basically. Not Rising Damp. Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> Yes. And we even by the tradition of, uh, of the sort of 70s and 80s filming TV series, that one was dire. Yeah. Not as true. bad as On the Bosses, but it was yeah, pretty dire. It was pretty dire. I mean, the, the only other thing he did of note was there's a very odd little late 70s TV effort called Good Lord, It's the End of Civilization as We Know It, in which John Cleese and Arthur Lowe play the descendants of Holmes and Watson fighting uh, the Senator Moriarty, who's played by Connie Booth. And that's... That would be a good combination. There, there, it is. There is a fantastically funny split screen scene where Moriarty is dressed as Watson and it's sort of Arthur yeah. Lowe talking to himself but he's so stupid that he can't remember which yeah. one is which so yeah um, I, don't, I couldn't find out exactly how much this cost but it was a massive flop and on release and it was slated by just about absolutely everyone there's an author called Vito Russa who wrote a book called The Celluloid Closet in which he called it one of the most homophobic films ever made although as with Spetters last week <laughs> a lot of the accusations that were made with the time aren't entirely valid now and I think it was you know, people getting yeah. caught up in the histrionics so the plot is uh, Peter Sellers good start uh, plays eccentric billionaire Sagai Grand who is the richest man in the world during the opening credits he decides completely on a whim to adopt a homeless orphan played by a Ringo star whom he finds just randomly sleeping in a park together as you do yes as you do because Ringo star would do that a lot in the 60s um, together they embark on a series of increasingly elaborate pranks to prove that everyone has their price and will do anything if the amount of money is right and it starts with little things like getting a traffic warden to eat his parking ticket but then it eventually ends up with them sabotaging the boat race taking control of an ocean liner and it finishes with civil servants swimming for pound notes in a vat of animal matter, to put it <laughs> delicately. If there was a cat, you know when you go into a sort of HMV or a blockbuster store, other stores are available, and you sort of see categories of films like, you know, action and romance and comedy and so forth, and if there was a category called What the Hell, then The Magic <laughs> Christian would be the definitive example. It's, it's one of those films which, you know, it's 92 minutes long, and it assaults your senses and your intelligence at a blistering pace, and the result is both, on the one hand, a colossal train wreck, and a very interesting commentary on human greed. I mean, if nothing else, it will make you laugh in that slightly awkward way that Dr. Strangelove yeah. did. was like, I want to laugh, but I'm also a little bit scared. <laughs> <laughs> so, when we did, um, I'm going to bring you both in now as a little yeah. bit of a challenge. When we talked about A Lucky Man, must be nearly a month ago now, um, I did a challenge where I tried to sum up the plot in the space of a minute and yes. just failed because, no, A Lucky Man's a very complicated film. Um, I'm going to do a similar thing here. I'm going to list um, several things that happen in the film in increasingly degrees of weirdness, and you have to shout stop when it gets too much. Right, <laughs> so you're okay, up for that. Okay, yes. Okay, you can join in as well. Right, okay. Okay. Here you go. So we'll start with something gentle. Spike Milligan as a traffic warden who eats both the parking ticket and its plastic cover when offered £100. That's fine. Okay. An auction where Peter Sellers bids with flashing lights and klaxon horns. <laughs> Sounds straightforward. <laughs> Lawrence Harvey playing Hamlet, delivering the to-be-or-not-to-be speech as a striptease. <laughs> um, I think that's a bit strange. <laughs> Are you calling stop then? Is that you? <laughs> no, let's have no, another one. Going, okay, okay. Okay, Yul Brynner seducing Roman Polanski in drag while singing Noel Coward's Mad About the Boy. 
Now that is just straight plain weird. Yes. <laughs> yes. Do you want to know what the last one was? Yeah, go on. On a train, a series of oriental businessmen rotate through hidden doors to sit next to a racist businessman who is dragged through the door, laughed at by divers in strobe light and carted off the train by the Gestapo. Yeah. That's that's the kind of indication of what we're dealing with yes. here. I see why I didn't go to see this film now. Because <laughs> it would have been around the same time as you would have seen it first time around. So given the choice between the two, you made the right decision. Yes. Um, there is a comparison with another late 60s effort. It was actually the first film I talked about with Paul Young in this slot called The Bed Sitting Room, in a Richard Lester yeah. film from the late 60s. And the comparison being that they've both got very particular brands and style of humour and once they've gotten into their stride there is no effort made to sort of tone it down or pare it back for the sake of holding an audience and because of the way that the ideas are, are approached in The Magic Christian there is no surprise that it was panned on release just because well either people took offence to it or just didn't understand it and both that and the bed sitting room have since been rehabilitated be perfectly honest with you, on the one hand, there is a lot wrong with the film. Um, like a lot of 60s comedies, it is shambolically constructed with a very episodic storyline. I mean, it does end up less of a story as a, sequence of, as a series of sequences of famous people enjoying each other's company at our expenses. Um, do you remember an early 60s comedy called The Millionaires? Yes, I do, yes. With Peter Sellers and Sophia Loren. It's, yes, it's, I do, it's yes. It's the one, um, you might yeah. recognise one of the images from it. It's the one with Sophia Loren sitting on the doctor's couch in that impossibly tiny corset. I do which, remember that, Is yes. that on your bedroom wall, by any chance? No, no, I would be allowed <laughs> to have things like that on my bedroom wall. Okay. <laughs> but, no, th I mean, that's a classic example, you know, well, it should be good, because, you know, yeah. Peter Sellers, who's pretty good, based on the George Bernard Shaw play, directed by Anthony Asquith, who made the original version of Pygmalion, but it does quickly descend into just, it's two famous people. Let's see what hijinks they can get up to. And also, you could argue that's the sex in the city of its day because it's Sophia Loren effectively arguing that money is everything in life and trying to convince Peter Sellers to be really miserable. It's very bad. So, McGrath, as a director, like I say, he doesn't have a great pedigree. I won't mention that sitcom's spin-off again because, you know, if it, it produces that kind of reaction. But he, his direction at very best is sub-Richard Lester. And I don't think Richard Lester's that good to begin with. Richard oh, Lester. I thought he was a good director. Well, he's pretty good. I mean, where do you stand on the Superman films that he helmed? Because he, he did the third one outright, but the second one was sort of... He was brought in halfway mm. through to finish off. Well, that's good film. Superman 2 is alright, but Superman 3, the junkyard scene is good, but then it yeah. runs out of steam towards yeah, the you'd end. you'd say that about most sequels, wouldn't you? But anyway, yes. Yeah. I think it was good. He, he's alright. He, he, he did Oliver, didn't he? Am I No, that, well, I can't remember who did Oliver. Um, I'll get back to you on that. He also did um, the Beatles films, Help and A Hard Day's Night, which are good. No, his yeah. 60s efforts are quite good, but then he does sort of lose it eventually. So, the story of The Magic Christian, like I say, makes very little sense. In fact, the story is... The premise is the story, that's it. It's, you know, Sir Guy Grand adopts a homeless orphan and they go on a series of pranks designed, and I use the word designed advisedly because the film isn't quite sure of how much of a message it wants to have, to prove that everyone's got their price and they'll, they'll do anything, no matter how degrading it is, if you give them enough money. And Guy supposedly gets this idea when he's, he's on the train buying a hot dog from uh, a guy with a hot dog stand on the side of the platform and he's got no change, so he hands the guy a fiver and the guy says, well, I can't change this, so he gives him a tenner instead, and the guy is so kind of overjoyed at getting 15 pounds, which was a lot of money in 1969, yeah. that he crashes his hot dog stand off the end of the platform and he's running after Peter <laughs> Sellers to get his change. And what follows is an increasingly elaborate series of pranks which target the unsuspecting public, which in the way of these things are played by famous people, in ways that are increasingly mean-spirited. I mean, like you say, you start off harmlessly with the parking ticket yeah. scene, or there's a sequence of Guy Grand going into a restaurant and eating caviar with his hands 
hands and sort of throwing his food around all over the customers. But soon the tone of the pranks becomes more savage, like I say, with the boat race being sabotaged. And that sequence actually has a cameo by John Snag, who, if you remember, the Goon Show was you know, the kind of the BBC announcer that they idolised, and they also commented on the boat race up until the end of his career. I do remember him. Yeah, yes, very unique uh, voice. Yes. yes, very. Yes, right. John yes. Snag. Yes. Um, so you would imagine that with scenes like this, you know, people saying, you know, you'll do anything if I give you the right amount of money, you would imagine that the Magic Christian would come across as a heart-hitting, if very heavy-handed, satire in which, you know, the seemingly immoral and upright citizens of the world are humiliated in such a way that we have to reflect on our own selfish desires. I don't know how are we mm. to joke, we would do exactly the same as them if put in their position. Sometimes it does manage this, but for equal number of moments the film does just sort of settle for the weirdness in and of itself and as we demonstrated at the start it's a very weird film yes. um this is particularly evident in the film's centerpiece which um involves the magic christian itself the magic christian is um uh, an ocean liner within the world of the film which is billed as the most advanced passenger liner ever and uh, what happens is that the guests embark having paid something like ten thousand dollars each for a seat and as soon as they get on they are shown a film of a black man's head being transplanted onto a white man's body you know questionable doesn't really cover it the ship's captain becomes steadily more drunk and is promptly kidnapped by a gorilla christopher <laughs> lee turns up and starts biting the passengers in the hold he's actually credited as the ship's vampire <laughs> and he's you know, clearly sending up his hammer stuff the guests flee through the pool room to the engine room for safety only to find that the engine room is full of hundreds of topless models commanded by a, rip, a whip cracking raquel welsh just again and they run off the ship only to discover that the whole thing of the magic christian is actually a simulator in a london warehouse because <laughs> the guy grand has bought the whole ship put it in a london warehouse and sort of tricked him out of their money and he's just sort of observing very rightly like, oh, you've made fools of yourselves uh, yeah so the set pieces in the film including that are completely inexplicable and I, like i say i mentioned most of them the um the hamlet sequence where they go to the theater and lawrence harvey is comes on it's the very traditional dress of hamlet sort of black velvet and the silver chain and the tights and he randomly starts to take his clothes off during the to be or not to be speech and it sort of intercuts with the audience <laughs> sort of groaning in disapproval and him sort of throwing his knickers on the women <laughs> I mean, it's funny but it's just so out of left field you think <laughs> Okay, where is this going? I mean, I'm gonna have to see this film. Yeah, I, see. Yeah, I mean, Lawrence, <laughs> no, granted, he's got a very good body, but still. Um, there is also a sequence on the train later on, just before the sequence of uh, no, the Oriental businessman and the Gestapo officer, which again just makes you go, Where on earth did that come from? There is a sequence where, um, Sir Guy Grant is holding a board meeting with his you no, know, his board of directors, and he's adopted. Ringo Starr's character who becomes called Youngman Grand onto the board and giving him a share of his money and uh, he says to the gentleman no the future gentleman is in motor cars we need to design a motor car that's going to knock all the business out and it cuts to this this sort of promotional film which looks like it's escaped from Yellow Submarine because it's this massive car <laughs> like 18 stories wide going down these imaginary streets with lots of strange I mean it's if you took Yellow Submarine sort of the strange cars in that and then put it together with Terry Gilliam's Python animations of women with sort of, you know, bouncing yeah. bosoms and so forth. It's a bit like that. And again, it's just a little strange interlude which doesn't have much bearing on the rest of the plot. So on the surface, there is an awful lot wrong with the film in the sense that it's shambolically directed, the story's all over the place, the main theme gets lost. And yet, somehow, don't ask me how, but it works. 
for starters, it is an achievement in and of itself that you could make a comedy that spiteful and mean-spirited at a time when most sort of mainstream 60s comedies were very light and frothy yeah. and completely forgettable. I mean, if you compare this to one of the films that Sellers made the year before this called The Party, which is uh, Blake Edwards' uh, farce, you know, Blake Edwards who made the yeah. Pink Panther series. Um, that's a farce where Peter Sellers plays uh, an Indian actor who gets, um, he gets blacklisted for blowing up a film set, but he accidentally gets put on the, the guest list for yeah. uh, the party of a rich Hollywood executive and he turns up and he starts you know, losing his shoe in the fountain and you know, accidentally eating the wrong kind of caviar and so on. It's, it's a farce which pays tribute to all the sort of silent movie conventions that Blake Edwards grew up with and it's quite good. But the point about this is that whereas the party was a throwback to all those kind of those silent era comedies or sort of Laurel and Hardy, no, it's all sort of knockabout slapstick and running gags. The Magic Christian, its its heritage is much closer to the darker, blacker comedies of the 80s, stuff like With Nell and I, which you know, we talked about on the podcast, or something like Michael Michael um, Lehman's Heathers, which has got Winona Ryder's breakout performance in. Um, but it's that sort of thing of... If you were doing a study of 60s film, you wouldn't expect it to come at something this sort of dark and spiteful to come out yeah. of a decade that you associate with sort of hippy-dippy yeah. flower power stuff. Eating um, comedies and all that. Yeah, I mean, well, eating comedies, sort of, they sort of peaked a bit earlier. Yeah. But, I mean, and bit, yeah, absolutely. The ultimate test of a comedy, past or present, um, is whether or not it makes you laugh. And The Magic Christian passes this test, even if, as is the case with some of Doctor Strangelove, a lot of the laughter is awkward laughter. Because you remember the bomb sequence on Doctor Strange yeah, where Slim yeah. Pickens is riding the bomb where you start off thinking oh it's a wonderful joke and then he gets close to the ground and you think right should I be laughing at this and then <laughs> when's he gonna blow up and then, he, <laughs> and then as soon as the bomb hits the ground you, you stop laughing because you're actually quite scared by what's gonna happen and it's that yeah. whole thing of yeah. No, horror and comedy are quite close yeah. together. I mean, there are some very good set pieces in it. The best of it is um, there's a, a sequence where uh, Sellers and Ringo Starr go to an art gallery where John Cleese is the curator. And they're having a look at this um, faded Rembrandt, which is about to be... It's a self-portrait of Rembrandt, which is, hasn't been um, validated yet. And before the auction opens... Um, Peter Sellers offers um, John Cleese £30,000, again, an astronomical amount of money when we're talking to yeah. pounds, shillings and pence, to buy the painting. And so, you know, they do the deal and he hands over the money and says, I've always liked, uh, you know, uh, Flemish painters. And John Cleese says, well, actually, Rembrandt was Dutch. He said, I don't like Dutch painters, they could only do noses. At which point he cuts out the nose of the painting <laughs> and says, that's a very nice nose, you can burn the rest. Walks off and then Ringo Starr gets the best punchline and says, and uh, in the auction, keep your eye out for a good ear. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just the whole thing, of, it's, it's awkward and it's very yeah. uncomfortable, but it is really, really funny. And then you get the subsequent set piece of Peter Sellers bidding in the auction where, you know, it cuts between the auctioneers sort of being very dignified and very restrained with Peter Sellers doing sort of semaphore and clacks and horns and those, mm. those navigation lights. And it's just, it's just funny. I mean, it's, it's a good set piece. Uh, the boat race sequence is very good where essentially they bribe Oxford to collide with Cambridge and then it descends into a punch-up on the Thames and, and John Snag actually faints at some point. And it's absolutely disgraceful. And... There is a there is a whole through line with the Goon Show because you no know, you can see in Guy Grand hints of Sigrid Pipe Thin, yeah. sort of the suave George Sanders character, and you know you could sort of tie in Ringo Starr playing a sort of Moriarty character, although it's not the sort of late period Moriarty in which he was completely under Grit Pipe's thumb. So we're getting into esoteric Goon Show history here. The other big draw of the film, as we came to at the start, is the cast. I mean, I'll, I'll rattle through these very quickly. Graham Chapman uh, and John Cleese, both of whom were involved in the writing of the film. Um, 
Graham Chapman is the Oxford boat race captain who turns up and says, no, it's just not fair play to cancel this race or to get us to do that. And then He'd do that role so well, wouldn't yes, he? Yes, he would. And then they open the briefcase and his expression yes. changes to that. Like, <laughs> do you remember his early Python sketches in which he did a lot of screaming, like yes. when he was playing at the Reverend Arthur Belling with the yeah. axe to his head? It's a bit like that. And then John Cleese turns up as the auction curator and, no, um, has a, a couple of funny And there's Dickie! Dickie? Richard Attenborough. Oh, yes, of course. I forget where he... Remind me where he turns up, because I couldn't find Oxford it. Oxford coach. Oh, yes, here. of course, because he's, um... He's not on screen very much, and he was quite... Because I associate Richard Attenborough now with being the sort of avuncular grandfather figure. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, he is very good. Um, Spike Milligan turns up as the traffic warden. It's very close to his performance in uh, The Bed Sitting Room, where he plays the world's last postman. And he was doing the sort of the early stuff with the Q series at the time, so it's yeah, it's typically off the wall. From Christopher Spike Lee yes, as the as, vampire. As what else? Yes, as ship's vampire. He, he kind of comes in... <laughs> to um, a lady's chamber, posing as a waiter, and he says, is that everything? Well, not quite everything, madam. And then the cape comes up. Yes. I mean, it's, it's odd, because you know, we're talking late 60s, and as far as I'm aware, he was actually trying to get away from the, the typecasting and the he hammer stuff. He was never so. going to get away from well, it. Well, yes, but no, he was making a conscientious <laughs> yes. effort to say, I mean, he, he actually went on record a few years ago and said, I've actually only done three horror films, which is blatantly <laughs> untrue. <laughs> yeah. but, well, um, put a couple of zeros on the end, yes. yes exactly, like <laughs> the Nick Leeson. Wilfred Hyde-White... Yes, for him. Yes, um, you're going to have to remind me who, what else he's been in because I could, I, I can't could. remember. But we will uh, Google that during the next song. Yes, we will. I mean, just again to canter through them. Hattie Jakes from the Carry On oh, series great. turns up as um, Peter Sellers' sister called Ginger Horton, who sort of complains a lot on the train, but she's got very good comic timing. Um, Rebecca Welsh as uh -huh. High Priestess of the Weep. Now she would have gone on my bedroom. Yeah. Wall. Well, this oh, was around yes. the. This was, <laughs> this was actually around. I think it was only a year after she did um, Million Years BC, which is the one with the obviously the famous leopard skin bikini. So she was in her prime, yeah. and she no, she does crack a pretty good whip. But then you know you get Roman Polanski, who actually does act a bit because he's in the Tenant, of course, playing the lead role. And he's very good, but he sort of turns up as a lonely drunk who sits at the bar and he doesn't get any lines, but he does. He does that thing that Polanski does very well of just looking very melancholy but in an appealing way. And then, as by magic, your Brinner comes on. Um, no, because we last talked about your Brinner with Westworld, in which he's kind of, you know, a yeah. gun-toting killing machine going around. And in this, he's a drag queen singing Mad About the Boy. I think his voice is dubbed, but if it isn't, it's a very good performance. And it's just very, very strange that he did that. So, to sum up, it contains all that is good and bad about 60s comedy. It is ramshackle in its, in its construction, but no more so than something like The Party. It is excessive and indulgent, you know, in terms of the nudity, but not to the point of utter frustration. And in terms of how well it's dated, compared to some of Peter Sellers' other efforts in the period, it's actually gone quite well. There's another film he made around the same time called I Love You, Alice B. Toklas, which is about, you no, know, he plays a businessman who gets involved in the hippie scene, and that's, you know, it's dated, but it's okay. It's enjoyably confusing viewing. You'll laugh, you'll be very confused, you might even be offended, but I defy you to hate it, because it is a very weird but good comedy. And I'm going to mention two more names in the cast list, because this is just brilliant, it just goes on forever. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Clitheroe. Yes. Yes, no, you have to be a certain age to remember who on earth Jimmy Clitheroe was. Yes. He was um, Lewis Denny of the 1960s. <laughs> <laughs> the name does ring a bell, about actually. The same, about the same size, actually. <laughs> uh, <even when laughs> Did he, he was, win many awards? <laughs> um, he was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And Michael Barrett, yes. presenter of Nationwide, yeah, as himself. <laughs> oh, yes, of course, because he... 
Because doesn't he interview one of the boat race captains or something at the start of the show or something like that? And uh, I think yeah. Michael Aspel turns up as well. Yes, he does, yes. yes. It, and yeah. on and on it goes. Yes, that's what they spent the money on, basically. Yes. If only they'd done a bit more of the story. Only one tune we could play after that. Yellow submarine. And we were marched till three... Thanks for tuning in to the district's newest radio station, Lionheart Radio. Beatles and Yellow Submarine. Yes. And we were pondering, was that the only film made on a song? But it wasn't, because Convoy, 1978. I shall have to check it out. Yes, don't. It's a rubbish film. Okay. Absolutely rubbish film. Chris <laughs> Christopherson, uh, Ali McGraw, and yeah. it was a song which was okay, and it was actually did very well as a song, mm -hmm. but then they made a film of it. Why? Yes. Yes. Um, we should just say before we get to the new releases... Uh, it's a classic next week, next week. Britannia Hospital, the final instalment of Lindsay Anderson's uh, Mick Travis trilogy. Very twisted, but very good fun. Well, what a surprise to hear it's twisted. Yes. <laughs> well, it's Lindsay Anderson. What do you expect? He's yes, right. The comfiest man in cinema. Right. TV series I absolutely loved. So it's going to be interesting to see how it gets onto screen. Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. Yes, a new adaptation of the 1974 novel by John le Carre, which helped to redefine the spy genre, made into, like you say, a TV miniseries with Alec Guinness and Ian Richardson. Um, I dare say you would have seen that the first time round. Oh, yes. Because I caught it when it repeated not so long ago on BBC4, and I love Alec Guinness. Yes. Um, it's brilliant. Yeah, Absolutely it brilliant. Was really good. Um, this is directed by Thomas Alfredson, who made uh, Let the Right One In, which was uh, which we talked about a little bit when we reviewed Kronos uh, a few weeks ago, in which I said it was one of the best vampire films of the last ten years, and I stand by that. Mm. It's an extraordinary film. So the story is, for people who don't know, it's set during the Cold War. George Smiley, who is played in this version by Gary Oldman, who's a brilliant actor, he's a retired agent. He is brought out of retirement to find a Soviet mole at the very top of the circus, which is the code name for MI6. And he sets about tracking down the traitor whose actions have led to the capture and repatriation of a British agent in Czechoslovakia. It's already been tipped for awards, particularly with Gary Oldman, and it does look like a candidate for film of the year. I mean, it does justice to the novel. There is a natural... When you're making a film out of something that epic, I mean, there is a natural compression, so you know, all the kind of stuff that was drawn out over the TV series will have had to be shrunk a little bit. But it feels as comprehensive as the TV series and as intelligent and, more importantly, as dramatically gripping as the TV series. I mean, Gary Oldman is turning into every bit as good an actor as Alec Guinness was. And yeah, I love and I, Gary Oldman is he was, always good. And he's going to be in the new Batman film, of course, which comes out next year. It's also directed superbly. I mean, Alfredson's, because Let the Right Winner has, has a period setting anyway, because that's sort of mid-80s, and he does period drama very well. He creates a sense of institutions and people that are part of their prime and the fact that it's all an end game and it's all going to come down. It's... It's a film not just about the Cold War, you know, it's about guilt and about dread and about loyalty. I mean, just as, the Le just as Let the Right One In was a film about children that just happened to have vampires in it, so this is a film about guilt and dread that just happens to be set during the Cold War. Uh, the cast are absolutely impeccable, not just Gary Oldman, but John Hurt, Tom Hardy, Benedict Cumberbatch, who's going to be in the second series of Sherlock. I may be getting ahead of myself, but it could be this year's Inception, which it's, is about as high praise as you can get from it. It's certainly sounding good, isn't it? I'm going to see it sometime next week, so I'll report back very yeah. soon. We'll be very interested to hear. Next one on my list, which has probably not got the most helpful title, Atrocious. Yeah, it's oh. not what you think. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm not going to defend it that heartily. It's a Spanish-Mexican uh, found-footage horror film directed by Fernando Barreda Luna, 
Uh, the story is that a brother and sister go to Sitges, which is the site of the Sitges Film Festival, with the intention of making a documentary about urban myths. The one particular urban myth that they're interested in is that of a girl in the red dress who lures people into the woods, so hints of Don't Look Now already. Um, what we see is supposedly the footage that was found by the police after whatever happened to them happened, and I say supposedly very strongly. There's always a danger with calling the film atrocious in the sense that you could say, well, the film reviews itself. And like I say, it isn't that bad. The problem with it is that it is desperately derivative. The found footage motif of saying, you know, oh, this is actually what happened and it was found by police and so forth. I mean, that goes back to the 1980s. I mean, there are hints in this particularly of The Last Broadcast, which was the film that sort of preceded Blair Witch about the people hunting for the Jersey Devil. And... The people are very annoying in it. We've seen too many films with this kind of aesthetic to suspend disbelief. It'll be out on DVD very quickly, so there's no reason to catch it in cinemas. Yeah, and if it's based in Citrus, not worth the effort of watching the backgrounds. Anyway, <laughs> um, change up. Now, we'll do this very quickly because we reviewed this on August the 6th, and then it never... It's never saw the light of day. I don't know whether we got our dates wrong or the distributors yeah. had cold feet and it got delayed, but no. Basically, if you want the comprehensive review, go and check the podcast for August the 6th, which was when we were and talking about... com. Exactly, but no, the short version is Jason Bateman, Ryan Reynolds, one's married, one's not. They want to change places, they change bodies, it's been done to death and it's no good. See, he says what, he, says what he thinks. Yes. Right. What did you expect, Richard? <laughs> Indeed. Um, 30 minutes or less. Okay. Um, new film, uh, or perhaps 30 minutes or fewer would be more grammatically correct, but there's some debate about that. New film by Ruben Fleischer, who previously made Zombieland. Would you have been old enough to see Zombieland? Uh, I was, uh, what, the recent one? Because it was, was the one made again, and then it was they're on the cinema Oz there. No, they're making a sequel to it, but the, the original came out about two years ago. I remember it coming out. I haven't seen it, though. Okay. Um, so he directed that. Um, the story in this case is that Jesse Eisenberg, who's in the social network... Oh, that's and awful. <laughs> Sorry, but... Jesse Eisenberg is awful. <laughs> no, the film itself. I just didn't enjoy you it. You didn't like social network? I walked out. That's how... I... You can walk out again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just well, Please stay, Lewis. Well, we shall talk about that off the air, because <laughs> that will take some time. Oh, um, no. So he was in social network. He was also most recently in Rio, the, uh, the 3D film, which took loads of money about McGraws. In this case he plays a pizza delivery boy who delivers in 30 minutes or less. Uh, there's another character played by Danny McBride who was in that awful comedy Your Highness recently with uh, James Franco in which it was a sort of modern stoner comedy but not funny at all. Uh, he wants to rob a bank so he can pay an assassin to bump off his father because his father's quite rich but rather than do the robbery himself he enlists Jesse Eisenberg by kidnapping him and putting a bomb on him and there's a sequence which has been played in all the trailers of him sort of cornering Jesse Eisenberg in uh, a junkyard and they've they put a sort of smaller bomb on a, a sort of cuddly bear and they demonstrate by blowing the bear up. Um, just as Zombieland was sort of, it's good but not Shaun of the Dead, this is good but not Four Lions. I mean, um, Four Lions was, you know, one of the, a really good comedy from last year, the debut film by Chris Morris who made The Day Today and Brass Line. It, it was edgy and scabrous but it had... It had a very funny heart to it, you know, even all, in all the stuff with you know, rubber dinghy rapids and blowing up the crows and so forth. And there are some laughs in 30 minutes or less. I mean, it's, it's not one of those comedies that isn't funny at all, like the change-up. There are, there are laughs, but in the way of a lot of Danny McBride's work, they are sort of broad and slightly overcooked, in the sense that you know, we're having to tell you that this is funny yeah. rather than it being funny. The plot does quickly descend into very over-the-top action sequences in involving flamethrowers. I mean, it does effectively amount to a bunch of famous people doing their shtick, which, you know, in the case of the Magic Christian, that's <laughs> fine because, you know, you've got yeah. a storyline and, it, and you've got a talented bunch. 
And with Eisenberg, that's touch and go because, of course, although he's become pretty good recently with the social network in Rio and so forth, there was a time when he was doing the annoying performances that he does in The Squid and the Whale, which is really awful. So it's all right, but nothing more than all right, and it will be in one ear and out the other. Right, our next one, I suspect you're not going to like this one either because nobody else seems to have liked it. I don't know how she does it. Um, new romantic drama starring Sarah Jessica Parker, um, directed by Douglas McGrath, uh, no relation to Joseph McGrath. Um, he directed, most recently, he directed Infamous, which was the other film about Truman Capote because there was Capote that came out in 2005 for which Philippe Seymour Hoffman won his Oscar and then there was Infamous in which Capote was being played by Toby Jones and that explored his later life after all his fame with In Cold Blood had sort of died down very good performance in that by Sandra Bullock who plays Harper Lee oh yeah and he also wrote the screenplay not so long ago for Bullets Over Broadway the Woody Allen film which is one of Allen's better 90s yeah. efforts so the story is that Sarah Jessica Parker is a working mother uh, who is married to a middling architect played by Greg Kinnear who is in uh, Green Zone and Little Miss Sunshine and we see her going through her day balancing out her work work commitments and family life there are moments when sort of the action freezes and she talks to the camera in the manner of um i suppose like malcolm in the middle which you might remember um yeah sort of nodding and nursing sorry if i've offended you about social network but you are wrong <laughs> <laughs> so eventually she ends up getting off a top business deal with uh, pierce brosnan who is introduced when she's kind of shuffling around his office talking to herself and he says are you all right over there and she kind of jumps and turns around I've been in two minds about this, to be honest. Um, on the one hand, there have been sort of posters and advertising anywhere, and the advertising is really, really horrible because it's Sarah Jessica Parker doing that sort of cheese-eating grin that makes it look like it's <laughs> because it makes it look like it's playing to the Sex and the City yeah. crowd. But on the other hand, no, Pierce Brosnan's, I mean, his post-Bond work has been very interesting. I mean, most recently he was in The Ghostwriter, the Roman Polanski film, in which he was really, really good. And, no, I like Greg Kinnear enough, although Little Miss Sunshine did run out of steam. In the end, the film is not brilliant for three reasons. Um, firstly, it's supposed to be, you know, the story, you know, an average working mother, this is what working life is really like, despite the fact that she looks like she lives in the biggest apartment in the world and she looks every time she walks on camera like she's been in the makeup trailer for three hours. Like, no, I don't think most working mothers look like that. Secondly, the story doesn't really go anywhere because it's sort of, it's a day in or a week in the life of a character and it's and the, no, the recurring line is, I don't know how she does, I don't know how you do it. And no, that's fine, but no, we need more than that. And thirdly, it's... <sighs> Most questionably, it's the idea that the film is reaching out to working women saying, you know, it's okay, we appreciate all the hard work you do. And yet its view of women's place is actually quite old-fashioned because, you know, on the one hand, you know, yes, so, yes, she's the breadwinner of the family because Greg Kinnear's, you know, architect's firm is going down the pan. But she's also the one who's, you know, her main priorities seem to be taking care of the kids. You know, that's fine, but again, it's a very old-fashioned view of what... Very American. Yes, and it is very... So it's not <coughs> as awful... It's not awful in the way that Sex and the City 1 and 2 were awful. Yeah. But it's not any good. Yeah. So it's not I, worth uh, seeing. No. I, uh, I, I lived in the States for two and a half years, and it could have described any number of people working in my office. Yes. It's, uh, it's the, American, uh, the American dream. Exactly. Because you were in Atlanta, weren't you? Yes, that's right. But even... Uh, well, it, especially up in New York and Washington, same thing. Yep. I could reel off probably a dozen people I know who could uh, could have filled that role. Yep. Anyway, you instead. New film by uh, David McKenzie, who previously made um, Hallam Foe, which was quite good, and most recently Spread with Ashton Kutcher, which was you know, sort of rich, decadent, you know, rich boy landing around in swimming pools all the time. It wasn't very good. Um, it's a romantic drama set in the Tea in the Park Festival in London, uh, in which a man and a woman, the man's played by Luke Treadaway, the, uh, the, the woman played by Natalie Mina, they accidentally get handcuffed together and they have to spend the whole festival sort of joined up. Sound familiar? 
by any chance? No, sort of the device of two people being handcuffed together and sort of having to hang out. It's, it's quite well worn. Yeah. Um, it's been described by Total Film as before sunrise with mud and portaloos, which is frankly being weird. Do you remember before sunrise, the Richard Linklater film with um, no, I don't. Ethan yeah. Hawke in, I can't remember who else, there was a sequel yeah. before sunset which came a few years ago. It, I mean, describing it like that is a bit generous. We have a very familiar premise of sort of, you know, two people who don't get on being forced to share the same. I mean, you can sort of tie that in with, I suppose, Midnight Run, the Robert De Niro comedy from the late 80s. But, you know, we do all the usual jokes, you know, when you know, they're chained together and you know, one of them has to go to the toilet, but the other one doesn't want to. One of them wants a shower and the other one doesn't want to. One of them is being seduced and the other one is you know, being very awkward. I mean, all those jokes were done to some extent, in the Farrelly Brothers comedy Stuck on You with Matt Damon in. I mean, that's not a brilliant film by any means, but Matt yeah. Damon's quite good. I was reminded of um, a story that Richard Curtis told when he was doing... Do you remember the wedding episode in The Vicar of Dibley where Alice Tinker gets married? Oh, yes. And Richard Curtis was saying that when he wrote Four Weddings and a Funeral, he basically sought to do every wedding-related gag that he could, and then no, the producer came and said, OK, we're going to have this wedding episode. Why don't you go off and write some more jokes? And like... Well, I've already done them all, so yeah. <laughs> they have to think of all the stuff of this. But I was reminded of just that, of it's all been done before. Yeah. And with the best one in the world, this is not a Richard Curtis comedy in the way that it's written. So it's got one idea, it tries to run with it. In the end, it's a bit too thin and a little self-indulgent. Right. Tomboy, to finish quickly. Yes, uh, very quickly. A French coming-of-age drama directed by uh, Céline Sharma. The story is that um, a family with two daughters moved to a new neighbourhood during the summer holidays. The eldest of the two daughters play, is called Laura. She's played by a newcomer called Zoe Harron, who's terrific. She's got a shorter haircut and she dresses like a boy, so she's mistaken for a boy by the local kids. And uh, she starts calling herself Michael, and over the course of the film, she comes to terms with her identity. Um, when I went to see The Guard at the time set a couple of weeks ago, they showed the trailer for this, and, uh, no, it's Sort of, you know, bunch of boys running around being all rough and tumble reminded me a little bit of Stand By Me because a lot of it takes place in the woods. And then there was an audible gasp at the end of the trailer when it was revealed that she was actually a girl. And it, it, it must have yeah. been like, you know, being in the original screening of The Crying Game where you get that famous twist. So it's a very interesting drama about gender identity, not in the manner of the skin I live in, in which it's all cranked up and hysterical. But, you no, know, the idea of how gender is something that's formed very gradually by an individual. And it reminded me of a French film called Vion Rose, which you should check out. It's very good. And it won't be around for very long, but catch it if you can. So, Phil, film of the week is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Undoubtedly. Thanks very much, Daniel. Thanks very much, Lewis. No it's problem. been lovely to see you. Other reporters this week on the programme have been Simon Watts, Russell Hargreaves, Lee Stott, Stephen Jones. And all of us, other than Lewis, will be back next Saturday between 8 and 11. Join us then. Have a great week. Good Lots luck of tomorrow. Films good luck to go tomorrow. Oh, yes. Great and good luck to everyone else taking part. And good luck parts. to Paul Young, who's also running. Indeed. And anyone else that's taking part for Manic. I know James Willoughby's in it as well. Have a great day. I'll see you somewhere along the way. Bye-bye. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.